so you see that a lot of the, uh, and it's almost exactly this, this it, it's very similar, it, it's almost exactly the same angle, uh, but a lot of the biblical cities, Colossae, Laodicea, Ephesus, all those are in what we would call modern day Turkey, um, then of course most of us are familiar with what's in Greece, uh, and then going on up into uh, Hungary and Romania and those different places, and you can see, you can see them uh, there. So that was just a, you know, someone asked a question last week, and that person didn't have a map in their Bible. Um, and most of the Bible maps, even though they're good, there's, there's just not a whole lot of them. Uh, most of the various kinds of maps, if you're ever interested, on the internet there is a ton of resources. If, you just, if you're just curious about whether it's a city, location of, of, of a city, where it's at, maybe where it is today or what country it would be in, um, there's a lot of those. You can even look up, like there's, uh, you can go Moody Bible Atlas, that's online, it's free. Um, a lot of things you used to have to spend money for are free. And um, so you can do kind of a lot of research that way. It just kind of gives you, again, another, um, uh, some information as far as understanding what part of the country or what part of the world they're in. A great deal um, of the New Testament surrounds this area, the Mediterranean, uh, and different parts of the Black Sea. And then that's how, where Christianity started was there. Uh, and then moved down into North Africa first and then began to move up north. Uh, today we're studying uh, Philippians, and just as an interesting side note, Philippi, uh, the church there that was established, is considered by many to be the first church that was established in Europe. Um, and of course Christianity took off in Europe. The advantage that Europe had over North Africa is they didn't have people killing Christians. Um, the Muslims killed an enormous number of Christians um, in some of the early centuries. Uh, and that actually has something to do with why Christianity did not always spread as rapidly in North Africa as it did in Europe or uh, take as deep roots. And that was because of all the bloodshed. I mean, there are thousands and thousands and thousands. Uh, there's a couple of books um, talking about the early times where I wish I could remember the guy's name, I should have wrote it down, um, where he talks about uh, the first thousand years of Christianity or the first centuries of Christianity, and he talks about a lot of the uh, death that happened as a result, where sometimes entire towns, and I don't know if you remember, but just, uh, I think it was pre-COVID, uh, but there was a town in, it's either Iraq or Afghanistan, I don't remember, but it was a town they can trace back their roots 600 years. Uh, where the town is predominantly Christians uh, in, a, in a Muslim country. And uh, that town had been a stronghold for Christianity for 600 years. And again, one or two years before COVID, um, the Taliban came in and basically killed everybody. And so they're all dead. Uh, that, that town doesn't exist anymore. And none of those people exist. Um, and that's just the kind of thing that's gone on. We, it's easy for us to forget that. Uh, kind of thing because of where we live. Uh, it's not, so where we live is not a bad thing, but we just need to remember that when it comes to religion, people get real serious about that stuff. And um, not that we don't, we should, but I'm talking about where they are, they, they feel justified in killing uh, individuals for what they believe or for what they don't believe um, and think they're doing a, they think it's right uh, you know, their religion tells them it's the right thing for them to do. 
Um, so it's, it's just a, it's a sobering thought um, for us to remember. And so uh, you know, it's a lot. You're not going to see it on the news. You can look it up. You can look up some of the persecutions on on the internet if you want, if you want to keep tabs on it. Um, remember that in in North Korea, there are still literally thousands of Christians that are in uh, camps, like concentration camps, much worse than what Germany's were like in World War II. Uh, and the things they do to Christians there, it's even difficult to imagine what t happens. And it happens like every day, even like right now. Um, I've always been very disappointed in our country's hesitation to ever say anything about it. You know, I know sometimes you get the you get the governmental thing. You know, they're working behind the scenes. They're not working behind the scenes. All right, there's nothing going on, um, and uh, that kind of persecution. Um, anyway, it's just widespread. So anyway, this is kind of a sobering thing. But that's what that map is for. Uh, you know, if you have maps in your Bible, obviously, you know, it's not sacred. You can throw it away after you look at it. Go, oh, well, that's interesting. And throw it away. Um, not a big deal. So we're going to study Philippians. So to begin our study of Philippians, turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we have basically the birth of the church in Philippi. And so that's why we're going to start uh, with that. Chapter 16 of Acts. Yep. So beginning of verse 11. He's speaking of Paul and uh, his companions. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and, following the, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Uh, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul had said. After she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul goes up to, to, uh, to Philippi. Just so you know a little bit of background, uh, in Philippi, uh, the population there did not like the Jews. They hated them, right? They, was, they were very, very racist there in that sense. So Paul goes there, and on the Sabbath day, which means, uh, I don't know if it's Friday night or Saturday morning, but he goes down to the riverside. He had heard that there were some people that were gathering there, probably Jewish believers, um, or at least Jews who believed in the Old Testament. Uh, they don't have the gospel yet, but he hears about this, so he goes there to meet with them, and then it mentions that there's this lady named Lydia, Lydia was one who was, uh, took, her, took her belief in God very seriously. So Paul then begins to basically tell her the gospel. What I do find interesting is that in this city, where you have a lot of individuals who are kind of set against Judaism, against the Jews, they're, 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 gonna be, they're against Christianity as well. We have a lady who's actually very interested, but notice it says, and the Lord opened her heart. Uh, it's just important for us to remember that we should never assume that someone is going to understand and accept the gospel. We need to pray for them, pray as we pre present the gospel, pray that God will open their heart, 
that God will allow them to see and to understand. And so that's what takes place here. And of course, she immediately believes. She's baptized. Apparently, not only is she a seller of purple, she's pretty successful at doing it because she's got a pretty big house. Um, because she's not going to be inviting Paul and his companions to come to their house. If it's a small house, they'd be kind of awkward uh, for a lady to have these men staying at her house in that way. So we don't know how big the house was. But it was big enough to accommodate these individuals, and she kind of pressures them, says, you know, they don't have a place to stay. Uh, and so she's, you need to come and stay at my house, and, which would mean that she would feed them and take care of them and that kind of thing. So this is where they're at. They're at Philippi. They're at her house. They've, they're brand new believers. And so this is as we were going to the place of prayer. So another day has come, and they're going back to the riverside, to this place where these people gather uh, for, for prayer. So as we're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. So this lady, apparently she is, she's, however you want to say it, she's possessed by an evil spirit, and she does have abilities. She's got abilities to, um, you know, know some of the things about the future. She's able, you know, she's a slave, so they kind of use her in this way, and they're making money off of her. And so, you know, she, she recognizes who Paul is and what's going on, and so she's, being very obnoxious and very loud and following and screaming and yelling about what they are, which is all true. Um, but as you can see, um, it's not always sinful to be annoyed because Paul became greatly annoyed. <laughs> all right, but he, <laughs> but he, basically, he basically got rid of the demon, commanded the demon to come out of her. And of course, when that happened, her ability left. It was gone. So her owner saw, verse 19, but when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. So Paul and, 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 uh, and Silas, they're Jews, and, and that makes it worse. Um, they, they have interrupted these individuals, you know, the way they make money. The Jews are already not liked. Um, you can tell that they're not exactly telling the whole story about what's going on, uh, but, but they want these men to be dealt with. And so, verse 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, again, keep in mind that early on in the church, Christians were accused of being atheists. Now, you have to remember that. Because someone would ask you, who is your God, or who are your gods, and they would then say, show us your gods. And what would be a very common thing is, you, you know, if you worship Venus, you would have a, some representation of Venus in your home, and you'd be able to point to the temple, and all this kind of, well, the Christians worship a God you can't see. And so the accusation was, is they don't believe in the gods. So they were accused of being atheists. And there are those who were afraid of Christians because of that. They thought uh, that if you were running, running around and you don't, you don't believe in any gods, that means you're offending all of the gods. Uh, it was, so in other words, 
The way that people look at religion, it's not that we all had to believe the same thing. You may have your family gods, and I have my family gods, and someone has their family gods. As long as we're worshiping gods, the gods are going to be okay with that. And sometimes the gods may get jealous and get angry. We'll deal with that when that happens. But if we don't acknowledge any of the gods, they're all offended. And so the people were very superstitious. And so some of them would be afraid of these Christians. And they said they'd, they'd cause trouble. And they would also then believe that they are honoring the worship of the gods by getting rid of these individuals who are causing trouble. So when they say that they're advocating customs that we as Romans don't practice, that's what they're talking about. You know, they don't go to the temple. They don't make these sacrifices. They don't have any, you know, there's no statues or representation of the God that they worship. Uh, this is just messed up. And so they, they want these individuals gone. They want them to be dealt with. Um, and, of course, we already know that the main thing driving them is they no longer have a source of income um, because of the uh, uh, getting rid of the demon from the girl that, was, uh, that could prophesy. So, again, verse 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Now, just so you know, I don't know if you've ever done this, um, you know, sometimes, well, not sometimes, all the time. On Netflix, you know, they have foreign shows, okay? Uh, and I like to watch sometimes foreign police shows. And sometimes in these shows, you can learn about some of the cultural things that go on. So just so you are aware that even though we sometimes have a lot of protests about our police and the problems, we don't have any problems with our police. Go to India. I've watched a couple of their detective shows. And basically, if I'm a cop in India, I can pretty much do whatever I want. So if Brandon's messing up, I go see Brandon, and I just grab him by his shirt, and he, he might be begging for mercy, but we're going to take the station, I'm, I'm just going to drag him down there. Throw, I can throw him in the car, and if he's complaining, I'll just smack him. He can't, he can't sue me. There's no lawsuit. Take him down to the station, and it said, do you have any evidence? I don't need evidence. I know he's guilty. Throw him in a jail cell, and if he's making noise or he's asking for too much water, I'll walk in there and just smack him around again. And, and then my, my superior may walk by and see what's going on. He'll just keep on going to his office. You know, and then I, and then I, might, so I might spend several hours beating on him. I go, this guy, he's a tough guy. He won't confess. <laughs> All right. So this thing here that they do when they do this, when they, they rip their clothes up and start beating them, just so you know, that was an, that's an accepted practice in a lot of places, even today. It happens. We are very, when I say spoiled, it's a good thing. And I'm not saying every cop is good. But compared to many places in the world now, and especially when you go back in history, what we have is fantastic uh, when it comes to law enforcement and all the rest. This idea that people have rights, a lot of other countries laugh at that. They do. They laugh. They just think it's ridiculous uh, when it comes to that kind of thing. So I know, we, I know sometimes I think this, we have way too many laws. I'm grateful. <laughs> I'd rather have that problem than the problems they have here. So grabbing these men and just beating them, all right, that's, that's just not a big deal. You know, they, they, the crowd is egging them on. Let's beat them for a while. You know, and, and uh, so that's what takes place. So verse 23, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, 
They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So most likely, we don't know for sure, but most likely the way the jail would have been built is the jailer would have lived like upstairs. He, he would have had a you know, place to live and then downstairs or maybe in a partial basement or maybe even an actual dungeon, there would, that would be where the inmates would be kept and you could chain them to the floor. Uh, and oftentimes what would happen is if, um, if you've been arrested, if you want to eat, they don't have a kitchen in that jail. There's, there's no cook. You have to have friends and family that are going to bring you food. Or if the other inmates have someone bring them food, you hope they share with you. Because if that doesn't happen, you don't eat. That's just how it is. So, and you notice that there was nothing mentioned that after they were beaten with many blows, they saw a doctor, and then they put him in the, no, there's no doctor, there's no, none of that's going on. They just, they're shackled to the floor. And that's where they're at. Um, so it's, and again, it's very difficult to imagine. I think, uh, I know a lot of people were struck when we had the guy from Good News Jail and Prison, Prison Ministry here, uh, four or five years ago, he had been in Ethiopia, and he showed us, uh, it was a warehouse, but it was a new prison that they had for um, lawbreakers there. And it was a, 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 just a big, flat, empty warehouse, and I think there were 5,000 men uh, in there, and they, they were sleeping, and there was, they were literally right next to each other. So if uh, you would be, I would be sleeping like this, and there's someone, there's someone else's feet are here, and the other guy, his feet are here. My feet are next to someone else's head. And they're all just stacked, like, you know, not stacked, but they're all just laid out that way. There's no room to move. You want to roll over? Everybody's got to roll over, you know, kind of a thing. And it was stunning to see that, um, to see all those men. They don't have a choice. Um, and so, the, again, prison conditions, Again, we're very, we're very spoiled in that sense. Uh, there are some European prisons that are pretty nice, but throughout much of the world, it's, it's, a, it's pretty bad to be in, in, uh, in prison. So that's, that's the situation that Paul and Silas are in. Okay? So, so they've been beat. There's no medical attention. They, they've been charged unjustly. There's no trial. They've been thrown into uh, this, uh, this jail. The jailer's been ordered to keep them there. Uh, they're shackled to the floor in Philippi. And, and all they've done is they, they got rid of a, uh, a demon out of a girl who was going berserk, and they shared the gospel with this lady, Lydia, and uh, that was pretty much it. So they fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I don't know how many prisoners there were, but remember that, again, Paul and Silas, they've, already, they've been beaten. Okay, there's nothing just about this. It, it's enough to make you angry if this is happening to you. And they're praying, and the other inmates are listening. And they're singing hymns, and they're listening to them. And verse 26, and suddenly there's a great earthquake, so that the fountains or the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. 
Now, the reason why he was going to do that is the jailer was probably somehow associated with, with the Roman army, or maybe he was a retired uh, captain from the Roman army, and this was his job. But when you had this responsibility to keep prisoners, if they escaped, it's your fault. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. So if he had been on top of his game, meaning let's say that he knew that he wouldn't know there was an earthquake, but if he knew there was going to be an earthquake, if he had successfully killed all the inmates, he would have been said, oh, yeah, you did your job. He would have been congratulated for doing his job. You have to understand the mindset there. So in his mind, these guys escaped. He's going to be tortured and killed, right? Because, because that's what Rome did. Rome would always want to make an example of individuals who failed in their responsibility. And Rome had all kinds of things they would make up to create a spectacle uh, to, to bring about a slow death and, and but make it interesting enough that everybody would come and see, but the message is this can happen to you if you don't do what you're supposed to do, kind of a thing. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with prison riots, but normally when something takes place in a prison where chaos erupts, normally chaos erupts because some guards have been taken out or security has been breached, normally what happens is there's a lot of violence. It happens then. Number one, inmates. Obviously, there's those who are desperately trying to escape no matter what. Number two, uh, it may be some of them as well, but there are those who immediately begin to engage in acts of violence on each other. I mean, if you ever watch the news uh, or read any kind of history, that's what they do. The first thing you do is there's some, there's some guys in the prison they want to kill. They want to kill them right there. We want to get this guy because of, of the chaos. So there's going to be violence as well as this attempt to escape which makes what happens here even that much more unusual as to what happens. Because this is not the norm. Uh, the norm, again, would be not only chaos, but these guys would be gone. So the jailer assumes the normal thing's happening, and so he is, he's going to kill himself. So verse 28, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So I don't know how to explain that, except that it's the power of God. Because I understand why Paul and Silas are there. But that's not what Paul says. We're all here. Now, I don't know how many inmates there were. I don't know how big the jail was. I don't know if there was 10. I don't know if there was 20 or 30 or maybe 100. I don't know. But all I know is they're all there. And so Paul tells this guy not to hurt himself because they're all there. And so the jailer calls for light. So I guess they got to bring in the lanterns. And he rushes in and... He is so deeply affected by what he sees, which is Paul and Silas, all these men, he's shaken. So it's hard for us to understand, like, what's the deal? But remember, in his mind, the only viable option was to die. I don't know where you, where you are to be in a place where that is a, is a very real option that you want to take because it is better than anything else you can imagine. That, that's a dark place to be. He was in that place immediately after this earthquake. He, he's lost it all. There's no, he's just going to suffer immensely. This is the only way of escape. He's heard these guys. I don't know what, I don't know how much of it he heard, but he knew that they were singing and praying, and they're there. And the first thing he says is, he wants to know about God because he knows that's why they're there. He, 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 that much is clear. 
So they've made that clear. They're first night in jail as to what's going on. So the jailer calls for the lights. He rushes in. He's trembling. He falls down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So I don't know where all that language comes from, but he's heard enough to know that that's, that's his need. It's, it's incredible to see this. And so he, he doesn't care who's watching. He doesn't care what's going on. There's been this earthquake that's hit the city. doesn't matter. I need to get saved. Whatever these guys have, this is, this is legitimate. And I want, to, I want this. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So you see what happens is that he, so they bring, he brings them into the house. So obviously the city's not flattened by this earthquake. The foundations are shaken, and so the doors open because, you know, everything kind of shifts or whatever, but they're not, it's not flattened. So he goes, so they go into the house, and he cares for them. I mean, he's, he's taking care of their wounds. For, remember, they got beaten before. He, so he takes care of their wounds. He washes them uh, because he, he cares. His, his life has been transformed by Christ, and uh, so he cares about them. And so it says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all, of, all those who were in his house. And so again, he takes them. He washes their wounds. He's baptized, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And uh, so I don't know, <laughs> I guess I can imagine. He, he said, I guess he woke his wife up. He says, well, I know we had an earthquake. We need to fix food. <laughs> I don't know what happened. It's just kind of funny trying to imagine how that goes. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't know if they have their own servants. But, you know, there was an earthquake. Not a big deal. Cook. <laughs> so anyway, they get a bunch of food and they set it before Paul and Silas and I guess it's the men that are there. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we have this radical conversion and transformation right then where he immediately goes from a guy who could care less about these men to where he's ready to kill himself because of unimagined torture he's going to go through where he finds out they're all there and he wants to know who it is that they're worshiping. He wants to be saved. He gets saved. And now this guy, who probably doesn't care much about human life, suddenly changes. He takes care of their wounds, does it himself. They then, they brought them in the house, they feed them, and now they're rejoicing together. They're celebrating together because they're saved. I mean, this is just, this is an incredible night. Um, you could write books about this. They did. It's in the book of Acts. But anyway, um, it's pretty cool stuff. So then it says, the next verse, But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So something happens here that you need to be aware of. No one asked what, they just assumed they're Jews, they're dirty, rotten scoundrels, they're no good, they have no value, beat them, throw them in jail. Okay, let them go. Just say, oh, we're sorry. Go away. Paul is a Roman citizen. That's a big deal. 
in all the provinces of Rome, if you are a Roman citizen, you have rights. You have rights no one else has. They cannot beat you until you have a trial. They can't, they can't abuse you. They can't do it. In fact, if you're, a Roman, if you're a Roman citizen, even if you're found guilty of murder, they can't even crucify you. They can put you to death, but not crucifixion. No Roman citizen would ever be crucified because you'd be treated with dignity, with respect. Uh, you may still suffer when you die, but they're just, I guess the, the whole idea was being a Roman citizen meant something. You know, Rome considered themselves, you know, the light of the world kind of a thing. So what happens is, so Paul, obviously Paul was annoyed. So, you know, Paul's, he, Paul's pretty, he's a pretty cool guy. And so they go, you need, you need to go away, forget it. He goes, uh-uh, <laughs> ain't happening. You take uncondemned men who are, oh, by the way, Roman citizens, and you beat us, and now you say just go away? No, 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 no. They need to come here and apologize. I guarantee you these guys, when they get that word, they are freaking out because you don't do that. You can be arrested, lose everything you have, even be tortured because you go to trial, you be found guilty, why did you do this? Because they would, because Rome would have considered the honor of Rome at stake. Right? That used to be that way for our country. Um, in this sense, if, if it used to be that if you travel to another country, and let's say that there's some big hullabaloo, and you get you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and there's some kind of riot, and you get arrested. Let's say it's France or Germany or whatever, and then so they're 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 getting everybody, you know, finding out who everybody is and what they are, and they find out you're an American citizen, everything would change at that moment. They would treat you with great politeness. They would make sure that you were not in the wrong cell. Where you can give you, I mean, they would do a lot of things. They might even call the embassy for you. They're not going to mess with you because it used to be, it's changing, but it used to be that if you mess with an American citizen anywhere, you mess with America. Nobody mess with America. It just don't do that. Now it's changed. Some of that's our well, a lot of it's our own fault. But things have changed. But that's how it used to be, and it, it would it would strike fear uh, in in the uh, hearts and minds of a lot of people. There would even be gangs, like just gangs. South America, whatever. They would kidnap people. They find out you're an American, they let you go. They, no, they send the Marines in, so you go, you get to go away. Now they actually want Americans because they can bring in a lot of money and we're not going to do much. All right, so that's kind of how it was. So with this Roman thing here, this is a big deal. It's a real big deal. And uh, so Paul basically demands that they come to him. And so verse 40, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So that's the background. That's where the church of Philippi started. Lydia, her household, a jailer, his household, an earthquake, uh, the whole deal. That's how the whole thing gets started. And just so you know what preceded this, uh, just immediately preceded this, there was actually two arguments um, that Paul was involved in. The most recent one was he and Barnabas got into an argument about Mark. Paul was going to, to go on this missionary journey, and Barnabas wanted to bring Mark. Well, Mark had gone on the first missionary journey, but he basically kind of quit partway through, went back home. 
Paul was not having that. He was, he was upset. You know, it's the, I'm, I don't know if he was thinking this, but it's kind of like, you know, the, the baby quit and went home with his mother, and I'm not, we're not doing that again. So the, it, it's been interesting reading all these different individuals who try to figure out, well, who was right in this argument? Was Barnabas right? Because Barnabas was an encourager. He says, let's just give this guy another chance. You know, and Paul's like, but Paul was right. No, we don't have time to babysit. This guy can't be counted on. He quit the last time. We're going to, you know, we're basically going to be depending on him now. He's going to quit again. We, this isn't, what we're doing is important. We can't do this. And so you read all these articles and all these books, and, and people go back and forth. And I read one today, and this guy said, well, actually, what makes it really difficult is they're both right. He says they're both technically right. So Paul, I mean, Barnabas, faithful to his name, an encourager, wants to give Mark uh, another chance, and that's correct. Being gracious, and so they go their way. And Paul, you know, tough old dude, you know, no nonsense, but he was right. And the Lord blessed both of them. Right? So, it's, it, he, so this guy said, I don't think anyone was wrong. It just they both were right, and they ended up splitting, and the Lord blessed and Paul and Barnabas remained friends. You know, it wasn't like they, they didn't talk again. Um, that's something that we sometimes as believers need to learn to do. When we disagree, we can still be friends. We, we shouldn't hate each other. Uh, and it, unfortunately, that's not how it goes a lot of times. Uh, you know, we, we get mad and stay mad. So that's, that's the kind of background of Philippi. So turn now to the book of Philippians. Verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 would be a very common greeting as, as Christians. Grace to you, peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. It makes it very clear, this is a Christian, writing to Christians, this is about Christianity, you know, we're dependent upon the grace of God, you know, he is God. When it says the Lord Jesus Christ, that would be, that would be us saying that that is uh, Jesus, the perfect God, man, this is Lord God, the Messiah. That, all, that, all that's involved in that title, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a bunch of words that go together and we just say it. Christ means anointed one or Messiah. Lord means he is divine or he is God. And of course, Jesus is, is the man Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the perfect God man. So this is a very, this is a unique Christian greeting. All right, it's a, uh, that's important. Um, don't, get, don't get caught up when individuals say that, well, I go to a church and the reason why I like my church is we never discuss doctrine. Don't ever go to that church because something's wrong somewhere. Remember, the moment you say you worship Jesus Christ, that's doctrine. And if he's the Lord Jesus Christ, that's doctrine. We pray to God the Father in the name of the Son, that's all that's doctrine. So if they have no doctrine, they don't believe nothing. I don't know what, I don't know what they're doing. There, there can't be any such thing. Some people get all upset because they say, well, you know, but doctrine divides. It's supposed to, just so you know that. It's supposed to. All right, so if I'm talking to Matt, and Matt's a Mormon. He's not, but if Matt was a Mormon, right? And he says, hey, I, I believe in God just like you do. No, he doesn't. He does not believe in God just like I do. 
But a lot of other people who don't know that go, no, I know about Mormons. They're Christians. And they've tried to portray themselves that way. And there are, there are some Christians in some churches who think that we and the Mormons could all get together, worship together, because there's no differences. But there's some huge differences. And it makes a difference. Remember, we're not saying as Christians or as Baptists that we have a corner on truth. What we are saying is we believe the truth that God's given us and it makes it, it matters, it makes a difference. Okay? Think of it this way. When you go home, if you're married, you're going to go home with your wife or your husband. You don't say, well, you know, my wife was talking, I'll just take another wife home. She's a wife, it doesn't really matter. Nah, no. Those distinctions matter, right? I know that sounds kind of dumb, but I mean, that, but that matters. Right? So when it comes to who is Jesus, it matters. So if the, Mormon, the Mormons, which they do believe, they do believe that Jesus um, and Satan existed in heaven before, and they were brothers, and there was a war uh, that took place, and Jesus' side basically won, and Jesus ended up becoming God, and now has his own planet. Uh, I, I don't remember the planet that he's over now, but anyway, that's different than what we believe. And, and what they believe about being saved or salvation is, is a form of works. It certainly isn't going to be heaven or the new heaven and new earth that we know in the Bible, but whatever they are teaching about that, the idea is you earn that. And, of course, the Scripture makes it very clear that no one can earn it. That's why God sent Christ, because we, we can't do that. We're, we're already in the rears to begin with. Right? The requirement for heaven is perfection. We're already born sinners. It's already, it's already too late. You know, you can't put the vase, it's not like our vase is broken. The vase, we were born broken. And so we're in need of this. So these distinctions are really very important. So even in this very common greeting, it is really very Christian uh, in, in what he says here. And we need to remember that. Uh, and it's not that we run around trying to, you know, stick people with stuff. We're not trying to do that. But we just need to, we need to recognize ourselves, the importance of these things, of these words, of these titles, and who it is that we worship, and that we do worship the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't always have to say that all the time, but we, we want to make sure that we don't end up dismissing that, because that's how some denominations in the past, they, well, that's what they've done. They get rid of certain terms, or they minimize those terms, and that leads to uh, a lot of difficulties. So he says in verse 1, so it's Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, um, servants there, that's the Greek word doulos, that is, that is a word, uh, which should be translated slave. Uh, I won't go into the whole slave thing again. We talked about that in great detail when we were going through Colossians. But when it comes to the word doulos, that, uh, there are several things to remember. Number one, uh, if you were the, uh, a slave, you were owned by a master and you were totally possessed by a master. That was the meaning of the word. You existed for your master and no other reason. That's a slave. You had no personal rights. If you were a slave, you got no rights. None. doesn't exist. Uh, in many countries um, in the past, there's still some today that practice slavery, um, but in the past, if an owner killed his slave, he would never be charged with murder because he didn't, he didn't, in their mind, they didn't, he didn't murder anybody. You, you kill your donkey when you get mad, you killed your donkey. That was, just, that was dumb. You're killing your property. You lose money. If you kill your slave, that was dumb. You could have sold him. You know, that's how they would view it. Uh, so a slave then was someone who had no personal rights. 
he, uh, a, a slave was to be at his master's disposal 24-7. And then lastly, you technically had no will of your own. You were completely subservient to your master. Now, all those points I made are important because that is how Paul and Timothy viewed their relationship with God. But it's not a negative thing. Right? They don't view this in a negative way. It can sound very negative, you know, because for us, everything is about freedom. And freedom is good. Freedom is great. I'm a big fan of freedom. All right? So we're not, we don't want to be any other person's slave. But the best position for us to be is, is to belong to Christ. And, and because he's the one who's given us life. He's the one who knows better than we do what is good for us. His commandments to us are not heavy chains around our neck. That's what's going to give to us great, our greatest freedom, uh, actually, is through Christ. Uh, but, it, but we have to understand this idea of being a servant of Christ or a slave of Christ. And it's really important for us as Americans because that concept is so foreign to us. And so today, what we have, we have this in a lot of churches throughout the country. Um, I'm sure it's in this church, it's in every church, because it involves people. And it's our approach to Christianity. And our approach is that, yes, there are a lot of commands in the Bible. But I, but, and we won't say it this way, but we pick and choose what we like. We pick and choose what we're going to obey. And so we kind of view them as very important suggestions. And they're not suggestions, they're commands. God expects us to live this way. Now, again, it's not a, it's not a heavy chain around our neck because you always have to do all these things because it's like this. Uh, when you have children, your children, you know, I know they're trying to change it now, but your children belong to you, right? They belong to you. So as we raise our children and we teach our children, we give them responsibilities, and this normally happens when our kids are young. We just wish they could stay young forever. You're, you're, when kids are young, they want to help you, right? They want to help. They don't think about what they want. They really only want what you want. It's a great thing. And they're happy. Actually, they're actually happy. And if they help you, in whatever unhelpful way it is, but if they help you and you tell them that you're so grateful for helping you, they are overjoyed. It's just the greatest thing on the planet. I mean, it's just, that's the whole idea. So there's, there's this submission that kids have with mom and dad that is a, uh, a beneficial thing for them. They're cared for, and, but they still have a life of their own. They still have their own personality. They, they, they have a lot of freedom. There's still boundaries. Everybody has boundaries. You know, it's just they have shorter boundaries. You know, it's called the house <laughs> or the fenced-in yard, you know? Well, we'll remove the fences later when they get older. But the idea is, is everybody has boundaries. And, and they flourish when there's boundaries. In fact, they've done several, several, several studies. And, and one of the things they've proven is when you set up rules for your kids and you don't enforce them, they become insecure. They will begin to have psychological issues. That doesn't mean they're going to go wacko. Right, but they're going to become insecure. And when we're consistent in keeping the rules, they feel secure. In fact, they even say that sometimes, maybe often, but sometimes kids will begin to disobey on purpose. And when you get on them, it gives them a sense of actual peace and happiness. 
they like it because the boundary's still there and they feel secure. But if that boundary's not enforced, they, they begin to f feel anyway, like, well, they're lost. They, they don't know what, so that's very important. So part of that's, part of that's our built in, in, in for us as humans. All right, so God, you know, Jesus mentions for us to be like children and obeying. It's just we gotta get past, if you have this issue, we have to get past this idea that somehow it's negative. That, sometime, that somehow it's going to diminish you as a person or that it's going to diminish your freedom or diminish your creativity. It doesn't do any of that. None of that. Think about when you get married. When you get married, all right, you, hopefully you know this, you know you're signing up to serve that other person for the rest of your life. Now, that's not the only thing you're doing, but that's a major part of it. You're going to serve them for the rest of your life. You don't have any, like when I marry people, you don't have, I, I've never had a couple do this. You know, you have, you know, you, you promise to all these things, and then one of them says, oh, but wait a minute. So to make one thing clear, though, I'm going to marry her, I ain't serving her. Well, we have, then we will not be at the wedding ceremony. Right? <laughs> That's going to happen. Then I'm not doing that wedding, you know, right? because we've got a problem. Okay? So the idea is we're going to be serving each other the rest of our lives. We're not going to do it perfectly, but it should be where we are promised to do it because what? We want to. We want to do that. I want to make that person happy. They want to make me happy. We want to be happy together. You know, that's the kind of that's what's going on here. So we have to kind of get in our mind, get away from some of the things that our culture kind of keeps pounding into our head about what is real happiness, what is freedom, what is, you know, whatever, and, and get rid of these negative, you know, they, they have this negative view of being submissive. It's a negative view of being submissive to each other. It's a negative view of being submissive to God. Because it is this thing of rules and they think, think of all things that you can't do. But we should be thinking of all the things that we can do. Um, and so that's the idea here. So when Paul says this, remember the people he's writing to, they understand that. They don't have an issue with this. This is such a big issue. Some say this. I don't know if this is true. When it comes to translations, that's why they say, some have said, that's why the word servant is used. They don't use the word slave. Because they're afraid of the stigma. And so they, they change it to servants. I don't know if that's true or not. Yes. Oh yeah, his book Slave is good. Yeah. I would agree. Uh, verse three. So we begin where Paul begins to talk about this group. This this is a Paul is very close to these people. There's a very good relationship. Uh, and now, just so you know, Paul is in prison when he writes this to them. And so they're actually very concerned about Paul. They love Paul. They're, they're concerned about his well-being and whatnot. So he's writing them a letter, but, and, but he, and the whole letter really is, and he wants to encourage them and whatnot. So he begins by saying in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So that goes all the way back to when he was sharing the gospel with Lydia and her household and with the Philippian jailer. So he has this relationship with them, and when he thinks about the people of Philippi and think of that church, he's just, over, he's just filled joy. And he prays for them, and uh, he prays for them often, and it just brings nothing but great joy to his, to his heart when he thinks about these people 
and what's going on with them and again their partnership he sees them and of course they are uh, partners with him anyway they pray for him they've helped him on some of his missionary journeys and so there's this relationship this give-and-take relationship they have with each other um, a lot of respect and love they have for each other and so he he begins by saying that and so he says in verse 6 and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ so he immediately begins by encouraging them in verse 6, and so we have some theology here, and that is this. When we became believers, God was beginning a work in us. God's work in you and God's work in me, on one hand, is the same. It's to make us like Christ. We are at varying degrees far from that. Some of us are closer than others, but God's going to continue to work on us and in us until the day of Christ. So God's not giving up on you or me. He's going to continue to conform us. So everything that happens in your life, God is going to use in your life to challenge and to change you, to reveal to us our shortcomings, at times to reveal to us the good things that have happened to encourage us, to cause us to be, maybe at times, to be forced to change because we need that. We're human beings. We're stubborn. Uh, and so things may not work out. Um, we've already seen this in reading Acts, how God is in control of everything, and what appears to be things that are just absolutely out of control are all in the plan of God. You know, it started out nice and peaceful when Paul went to the riverside to talk to Lydia and her household. Everything was great. The birds were singing. I'm sure the temperature was marvelous. Paul gives the gospel. They believe. They get baptized. This is great. Come to my house. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, come. I got plenty of room. Come to my house. They go to this lady's house. She feeds them. This is great. You know, and so he's going there the next day. You know, he's going to go to this place, and there's this girl screaming at him about what they are, and she just keeps doing this day after day. So he just, he does a good thing. He casts a demon out, and then it's just chaos after that. He did not wake up that morning thinking that as I go to the riverside where we gather to pray, I'm going to be beaten by a mob of people and thrown in jail. God had all that under control. It, sometimes we don't want to volunteer for that because we don't want to get the beating part, but Paul was fine with that. He didn't want that, but he was okay with that. And you could tell because when he and Silas were in prison, they're singing and praying. And, you know, it's, all, it's, it's almost kind of goofy, you know, because it's almost like, wow, we've been beaten and we're bleeding and we hurt. What's going to happen next? Like, well, I don't know if they'll be too happy about that, you know. I know I've told you before the weird things my dad has done. You know, he'd be in a, he, he's driving on the interstate, which they do have interstates in Hawaii, even though it's just one place. He gets hit by somebody, and my dad gets out of the car and literally says to the guy that hit him, first, are you okay? And number two, I'm glad you ran into me today. That's as corny as you can get, but he was serious. When he broke his leg, we, were at, we had a church thing, picnic, he broke his leg. I mean, he, it was nasty. In the bottom, he broke both the bones in his lower leg, both of them. And one of them was kind of poking up out of the skin. And so they had to send an ambulance. We are in the middle of nowhere. And he had to send an ambulance, and they put this big bubble thing back then around your leg, and there'd be pressures to take the pain. Well, it just so happened the one that he had, it was leaking. So the pressure would begin to be relieved. You'd go, oh, they'd have to blow it back up. And then a little while later, oh, blow it back up. I mean, it's a mess. But all that, he was happy because when he's in this ward the next day, he meets this guy who 
is there for a uh, emergency appendectomy who happens to be on vacation with his wife from Oklahoma and the reason why they're on vacation in Hawaii is because they're going to get divorced and they want to give the kids one last hurrah nice memory before their world falls apart and my dad leads that man to the Lord and then that man's wife comes to see him my dad leads that woman to the Lord and my dad then disciples him every day for a week until they go back to wherever they came from. And they call my dad uh, so my dad could help them on the phone. There's no internet back then. This is, you know, this is the 70s. This is dark ages. Help them find a church. And they called him a year later. Some of them are doing great. There's no divorce. The kids are doing well. The whole deal. So attitude is everything. Now, with my dad was not happy he broke his leg. And he limped. We see my dad's still alive, but he's, he's limped for the rest of his life since. Of course, now it's worse because his knees are shot, but, he, he, but there's no complaint. He's happy because of those kind of things that happen. It's just nuts. Anybody can do that. Everybody can. It, it all begins with what is it that we believe about God? What, what, are, we, what are we here for? Who, who, you know, we carry the message of Christ within us. We have something to share with people. We have our joy. We have this message. You know, we may not be able to share the gospel day one. You know, we just might be their friend day one. But, or it just be like Paul and Silas. We're just singing hymns and praying. And then the Lord sends an earthquake. You know, and you know, Paul and Silas could have said, you know, when the earthquake happened, God has freed us and run away. But they had the wisdom of God, and they didn't do that. They stayed there. I don't know if I would have, I mean, I'll be honest. I don't know if I would have done that. I mean, I, now I would because I can't run. I said, well, I can't run, so I'll stay. You know? But when I was younger, I might have run. I don't know. But it was just, it's an amazing story. So here, they know all this about Paul. You know, some of them, are, they were part of all of that. And so he writes them and he says, you know, I just want you to know that the one who started that good work in you, he's going to complete it to the day of Christ. And so we all have that hope within us. No matter how bad things are for you, no matter how much you've messed up, and your life, no matter if you suddenly started feeling guilty because you keep finding yourself just not doing what God wants you to do, you ask God to forgive you, He will. If you're, that, that, that's, not a, that's not a flimsy way of looking at it. That's how God wants us to see it. And we say, God, I need your help. I want your help. And He'll help you. He will do that. And He is working in your life, whether you feel like it or not. He is going to continue to work until He completes His work in you. And He's going to complete His work in me. And I know some of you, I'm glad God's not going to stop till he completes the work. You've got some work that needs to be done. <laughs> All right? And don't talk to Cindy. You should tell you that God's got a whole way, a long ways to go with me as well. But that's okay. All right? So this part that he begins with here is really very important. And one that we just can't say, oh, this is a nice greeting. No, he's telling us about what God does in our lives. And that God is actively at work in your life every single day. And so we have that hope that... If you've been messing up, it's a new beginning. Go to bed tonight, wake up in the morning, start by reading your Bible and say, Lord, please help me. He will do it. He will help you. And uh, who knows? He might even send a good earthquake your way. And uh, if that happens, say, okay, what would Paul do? <laughs> anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and love. And we just thank you, Father, again for Paul and really for his amazing attitude and the amazing life that he lived. And Father, we ask you to help us to recognize where his strength comes from, where his attitude comes from. Help us, Father, to, to see clearly how you worked in his life and then how you worked through him in the lives of others. We thank you, Father, for the great joy that he and Silas experienced 
even in the midst of being in, in a dungeon, chained to a floor after they've been beat. We just thank you, Father, so much for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Father, to continue to grow in Christ. And we're grateful, Lord, that you are, in that sense, stubborn, and that you will complete the work that you've started in us. And we're all grateful for that. We ask now, Lord, you keep us safe as we go home. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be cognizant of who you are, and that, Father, we would desire to be used by you in the lives of others to be a blessing to them. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.